Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Well, I have a confession to make to you today. Now, despite the fact that I've been a Christian for over 40 years, and I have been in full-time ministry for over 35 years, and I have been pastor of this church now for over 25 years, um, I have come, well, thank you, I have come to hate religion. And, and I'm not alone. The Apostle Paul felt the same way. Look at what he writes to the church in Galatia. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's talking about a religious gospel here, which is really no gospel at all. And now I'm going to switch and I'm going to read for a little bit from the Passion Translation. I don't know if any of you all are familiar with the Passion Translation. It's really more of a paraphrase, but I highly recommend it. It's very rich. Um, but he goes on to say, you have allowed those who mingle law, that is religion and rules, with grace. And they're confusing you with lies. Anyone who comes to you with a different message than the grace gospel that you've received will have the curse of God upon them. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Christianity is, is not a religion. It is a relationship with God. How many of you all have ever heard that? See your hands? Yeah, most of you. My former pastor, Tim Timmons, said about that statement. He says that this is the worst piece of Christian propaganda that has ever been spoken from the pulpits of our churches. Not because it isn't true, it's very true, but because it's the experience of so few Christians. So what he was saying is that most of us live out the Christian life like it was no different from any other faith. Only the names have been changed to protect the ignorant. So instead of living out what Christianity truly is, a relationship with God, we, we tend to slip back into religion, just as the Galatian Christians were doing. So how do we keep from that happening? How do we keep from slipping from relationship to religion? And what are the signs that we're slipping? That's what we're going to be talking about today. So number one in your outline, we're slipping into religion when we focus on rules and rituals. Now look at what Jesus says in Revelation 2 to the church at Ephesus. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus write, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them to be false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships in my name. You've not grown weary. You have your quiet times. You're at church every time the doors are open. You tithe. You read your Bibles faithfully. You know how to find the book of Obadiah without looking at the table of contents. You have mountains of Scripture memorized. You don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. You, are, you have the Christian life down pat, man. Right? Wrong. Look at what he says in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. Read it out loud with me. You have forsaken your first love. So they were doing right things. They were just being done for the wrong reasons. It was out of duty and obligation rather than out of love. 
Now, if you don't think there's any difference, any real difference between doing something out of duty and obligation and do, doing something out of love, I want you to ask any wife. Ask any wife if it's okay for her husband to do things simply out of duty and obligation. Ask her if it's enough for him to show affection to his wife because that's what a husband is supposed to do, not because he wants to demonstrate his love to his wife in a way that she can appreciate. See if it's okay for her if her husband would just say, give me your hand, let's hold hands for a while because that's what good husbands do. Or here, let's hug. Three, two, one, good, all right, thank you. Happy anniversary, I got you a piece of candy. I'm betting she won't like that. Right. God doesn't either. He wants our obedience to be driven by our love for him. Now, obedience is important, but motive is equally, if not important. Obedience without love is drudgery at best, it's slavery at worst. Now, when my daughter Jessica was very young, um, we had a rule in our house that kids are allowed to play with one toy at a time, and after they finish playing with that toy, they're supposed to put it up, and then they get out another toy. And so I came home one, one evening after work, and um, her toys were strewn all over the living room floor. So I said, Jesse, you, you know better than that. Um, please put your toys back. Put, it, put them away. And she just kind of ignored me and kept playing. And so I gave her a second chance, and I said, honey, um, you need to pick up your toys. Take them back to your room. Ignored me again. So on the third one, I said, honey, if you don't pick up your toys, daddy's going to have to give you a little swat and send you to your room. She ignored me again. again. So I went over to her, and I gave her just a little swat on the bottom and sent her off to her room. She went to her room crying. I sat in my chair in the living room, and I got out my newspaper, started reading my newspaper, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye her entering back into the living room. And I saw her pick up a toy and take it back to her room. And she did that again and again and again and again. And finally, all the toys were picked up. And when all the toys were picked up, she jumped into my lap. She pushed that paper aside. She grabbed my face in her hands. And she said, Daddy, Jesse, obey. I love you, Daddy. And she just gave me a great big hug, which totally melted my heart. Do you know, even a child knows that obedience can be a powerful expression of love. And that's what our obedience should be, an expression of our love for God. You know, love compels us to do what duty and obligation can't. I dislike rabbits. I do not like rabbits. I do not like rabbits almost as much as I do not like cats. However, my whole family loved rabbits. So guess what we had as pets? Rabbits. And I'm not talking one rabbit. I'm talking lots of rabbits. And by lots of rabbits, I don't mean two. I don't mean five. I don't mean ten. I mean 87 rabbits. You know those things breed faster than cockroaches? But Orkin does not spray for rabbits? I know, I asked. Why did I let it give in and let my family have rabbits when I don't like rabbits? Because I'm a softy? Yes. Because I'm stupid? Yes. Because I love my family? Yes. 
I'll say it again. Love compels us to do what duty and obligation can't. Compels us to do more. Rules can only modify behavior for a short time. But it cannot. Rules cannot change a person's heart. That's the work of God's spirit. And that's the result of a growing love for God that's responding to God's love for us. If rules could change a person's heart, then every person coming out of prison would be a saint. Right? Now, I'm convinced, and there's many reasons, and we talked about uh, some of these a few weeks ago, but I'm convinced that Many of our young people who are leaving the church and some who are even claiming to turn away from the faith, what they're actually turning away from is the religious version of Christianity. They're turning away from what they think is just another philosophy and another list of things that they're supposed to do and not do. They're not turning away from what Christianity really is, and that is a relationship with God, a God that loves them. They're turning away from that version that says that being a good Christian means you have to do this and not do that. And that is a gospel that Paul says in verse 7 of Galatians is really no gospel at all. You've allowed those who mingle law, mingle religion and rules with grace, you've allowed them to confuse you with lies. That's not what Christianity is. Anyone who comes to you with a different message than the grace gospel that you have received will have the curse of God upon them. We, we, again, we have meant well, I think, with our kids, but we have taught them and modeled them a faith that is more about correctly living by a set of rules than that love relationship with God that it actually is. Well, number two, we're slipping into religion when we feel unaccepted. Now, in our heads... We understand what grace is. We understand the definition, that is. But it's a lot harder to accept than it is to to know in our heads. Now, if you're new to the church, grace simply means this. Grace is the undeserved kindness and the undeserved acceptance and love of God. It means, as Romans 5, 8 tells us, let's read it out loud together. God demonstrates his love toward us in this. Even while we were sinning against him, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Underline those words, even when we were sinning against him. Totally undeserved love to the point of him coming and dying for us. Now, there are many different examples of God's grace and unconditional love in Scripture. One of my favorites is probably one you've never thought of before. And that is how Paul, Paul, what Paul's attitude is toward the church at Corinth. Now, if you don't know much about the church of Corinth, this was one bad church. And by bad, I don't mean good. They were a mess, probably the worst church in the uh, New Testament period. The uh, members were fighting with each other. They were choosing sides. They were basically dividing themselves into cliques. They were dividing themselves into denominations. I've heard there were the Episcopalians and the Apollodists, and I even hear there were some Peter Costals. That was free. And that isn't the half of it. Members were committing adultery with one another. 
um, their observance of communion became a drinking contest, and they were getting drunk during communion services. Think of that. The church was filled with such spiritual pride that they were misusing spiritual gifts. They were using spiritual gifts for, for purely selfish reasons. They were greedy and they were stingy. They, were, they had promised money to the poor that they hadn't given. Now, if you were going to send a letter to the, to the Christians at Corinth, at that church, and if you were going to tell them in this letter how God felt about them, what would you write? You know, I tell you what, what, what I think I'd probably write. I'd probably be pretty nasty. I would say, you know what? You're a disappointment to God. You should be ashamed of yourself. God doesn't love you. I don't love you. Besides that, you're ugly and your mama dresses you funny. And if you don't repent, God is going to judge you. He's going to judge you. But look at how Paul begins his letter to them. 1 Corinthians 1.3. Read it out loud with me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at how he ends his letter. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. Read it out loud. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Wow. That's grace. That's real grace. Now, to be sure, Paul does try to correct their unacceptable behavior. But he bookends his letter with grace. Uh, even, even though they're doing unacceptable things, he wants them to know they're still accepted by God. He wants the grace of God to be the first thing on their minds and the last thing on their minds as they read that letter. And you know, even though you do unacceptable things, God still accepts you. Even when you're acting unlovable, God's love for you does not change. Now, whatever you do, and hopefully most of what you do is good. But even if you fall, even if you fail, understand that your life is surrounded by, and it's hemmed in from beginning to end by the grace of God. And nothing will ever change that. Look at Ephesians 3. Paul writes to us, May you have the power to understand, as some of God's people should, Right? No, no, no. He says, may you have the power to understand as God's obedient people should. Right? No. May you have the power to understand as what? All God's people should. How wide and long and how high and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. No, God's love for you is too great to understand. You know what's understandable is if you are loved greatly and you deserve it. What's really difficult to understand is when you're loved greatly and you know you don't deserve it. You know, I, I don't know what your week was like last week. I don't know what your day's been like so far today. Maybe it was a really, really bad week. And I want you to know that no matter what happened, God's love for you did not change. And it was wider, and it was longer, and it was higher, and it was deeper than any of your struggles. You cannot do anything to earn God's love. You don't have to do anything to keep God's love. 
There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less than how he loves you right now, which is greater than your understanding. So the question comes up. Well, if God's going to love us no matter what, if God's going to love me no matter if I do good or if I do bad, then won't that just encourage us to go crazy, to go wild and crazy and just sin? The answer to that is no. It shouldn't. It should do just the opposite. It should fill us with gratitude and love that makes us want to obey him even more. One of my kids said to me recently, and I won't tell you which one, but this child of mine who went through a period of hard rebellion said to me, Dad, thanks for loving me. And thanks for not giving up on me when I was just terrible to you guys and I was being such a jerk. And I want you to know that that unconditional love that you showed me was probably the main thing that helped me to wake up and decide to get my act together and come back to the Lord. Love can change a heart in a way that condemnation and judgment cannot. Now, the Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man, that the highest purpose of man is to glorify God and, listen, to enjoy Him forever. I don't think most Christians get to that point. I don't think most Christians get to the point of enjoying God. It's our highest purpose, to enjoy Him. See, for many of us, the Christian life feels more like a burden at times than a blessing. When you think that all God wants from you is to keep His rules, and if you don't do it well enough, if you don't measure up, He's disappointed at you. He's mad at you. And how are you supposed to enjoy God if that's what He's like, if that's what you think the Christian life is? Listen, I don't care what you've done. God's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you. And when he thinks of you, he smiles. You can enjoy God because he finds great joy in you. And it's not because of anything that you do. It's not because of anything you don't do. It's because of who you are. If you've asked Christ to be your Savior, you are his precious daughter. You are his beloved son. And that's why he loves you, regardless of what you do. You know, I, I believe that the greatest joy that we give God is when we are enjoying him. So when you begin to feel unaccepted, you begin to feel shameful, you begin to feel unworthy, like you can't call out to God, like you can't worship him, like you can't come to church, like he turns his face away from you. That's religion talking. That's a lie. Not only does God love you as you are, he also loves you too much to let you stay that way. Understand that because God desires your best, he will work within you through his Holy Spirit to turn you away from destructive behaviors and lead you to the abundant life that he's provided for you. Number three, we're slipping into religion when we live in our own strength.
How many of you honestly think that living the Christian life is difficult, that becoming more like Christ, that, that's really difficult? How many of you would say that? Well, um, you're wrong. It's impossible. It's impossible in our strength. You know, um, just real quick. My, my, my daughter, <laughs> inside joke, my daughter's um, dating a magician, and I learned some tricks from him, and, and, I, and I would like to show you one. Would that be okay? Are you guys in? Okay, cool. So um, this is a magic glove, very, very magic trick, wonderful, talented glove, and it can do some tricks. So watch this. Glove wave at these people. Glove, wave at these people, please. Uh, let me try a different trick. Glove, make a fist. Make a fist. Please. I'm sorry. That was kind of a flop, wasn't it? I have no clue what, oh, wait a minute, I forgot something. Glove, wave to these people. Glove, make a fist. Glove, can you tell these people how many Super Bowls the Dallas Cowboys have won? Glove, can you tell these people how many Super Bowls the Dallas, that the Denver Broncos have lost? Glove, what do you think of cats? What do you think of dogs? Glove, who is the coolest person in this room? I told you it was a good glove. Look at Galatians 2, 20. Oh, you had your chance. Galatians 2, 20, Paul writes this. He says, I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So I live my life in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this, this empty glove, this is religion. This is living in the flesh. This is my attempts in my own strength to live a life pleasing to God. This is true Christianity. Christ's Spirit living in me, living through me, giving me the strength to do what I cannot. Philippians 4.13 says this. Read it out loud with me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me his strength. We can do all things when we are filled with the Spirit, when Christ is living in and through us, which we are, again, when we're filled with the Spirit and moment by moment we're asking for and receiving his strength, his power by faith. Number four, we're slipping into religion when we're judgmental toward others. Have you ever heard that we're supposed to hate the sin, but love the sinner? Easier said than done, isn't it, to love people that behave badly? When we hate the sin and we hate the sinner, that's religion. That's Phariseeism. Uh, religion views sinners as God's enemies and ours rather than those that Christ loves and Christ came to die for. Religion devalues people that don't measure up. It devalues people that don't 
think like we think, who don't believe the way we believe, who don't act the way we act, and who don't vote the way we vote. Religion makes people fly airplanes into skyscrapers. When religion has overtaken the church, it has motivated things like the Inquisition and the Crusades. But what did Jesus model? What did he show us was the heart of God toward sinners and toward the worst of sinners? Luke 7, 34. Jesus said, and I, the son of man, feast and drink, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and, read it out loud with me, a friend of the worst sort of sinners. Underline those words, a friend of the worst sort of sinners. Yes, it's our responsibility to speak against sin, but always while loving the sinner, always demonstrating the love and the grace of God to them while realizing that we always, ourselves, are dependent on the grace of God. So, um, read a story to you as I come to a close. Um, this is a story I've read several times. I love this story. It's probably one that I'll read every year while I'm the pastor until Jesus comes back. It's a story Anthony Campolo tells a story of a time that he was in Hawaii. He was there to speak at a Christian conference. And uh, he had jet lag, and he couldn't go to sleep, so he got up, went out into the streets of downtown Honolulu to see if there was some place open at like 3 in the morning, see if there was some place open uh, to get something to eat. So I'm just going to read what he writes. I finally found a scary little diner that was open, went in, took a seat at the counter. A very large, gruff guy with Harry stitched on his shirt came over. What do you want? Uh, a cup of coffee and a donut, please. So as I was sipping my coffee and munching on my donut, suddenly the diner door swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight provocatively dressed, boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place. They sat on either side of me at the counter. Their talk was loud and crude, and just as I was about to make my getaway, I overheard the woman beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So, what do you want from me? A birthday party? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? Is that what you want? Come on, said the woman sitting next to me. I was just telling you, that's all. Trying to make light of it, she said with a fake little laugh. Huh, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why would I want one now? Campolo says, when I heard that, I made a quick decision. I waited until the women had left. And then I called Harry over, and I asked him, they come in here every night? Yeah. The one next to me, does she come here every night also? Yeah, that's Agnes. Why do you want to know? I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here in your diner tomorrow night? A cute smile, slowly crossed his chubby cheeks, and he answered with measured delight, I like it. That's a great idea. Calling to his wife in the back room, he shouted, Hey, come out here. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday. This guy wants us to go in on, him, on with him and throw her a birthday party right here tomorrow night. His wife said enthusiastically, That's wonderful. You know, Agnes is one of those people that's so nice and kind, but nobody's ever nice to her in return. Look, I told him, if it's okay with you, I'll get back here tomorrow morning by 2.30 
I'll decorate the place. I'll even get the birthday cake. No way, said Harry. The birthday cake, that's my thing. I'm going to make the cake. So at 2.30 a.m. the next morning, I was back at the diner. I decorated that diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The word must have gotten out on the street because by 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in that place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open. Agnes entered with her friend, and we all screamed, Happy birthday! Never have I seen a person so completely overcome with emotion. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. And then when the birthday cake came out with all the candles, she lost it and just began to weep. Harry gruffly mumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to blow out the candles. Well, she couldn't get her composure long enough to do it, so Harry did. Then he handed her a knife, and he told her, Cut the cake, Agnes. Come on, we all want some cake. Agnes looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off it, she softly and slowly said, Look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, uh, I mean, is it okay? Is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? If we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged. Sure, it's okay. It's your cake. Take it home if you want. Can I? She said. I do want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back, I promise. So she picked up the cake, carried it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door, and as we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was just a stunned silence in that place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems a little strange for a Christian pastor and sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. And so I prayed. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that she would experience God's goodness and love for her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter, and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? In one of those moments when just the right words seemed to come, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. He sneered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd go to that church. Campolo writes, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to join a church that sees the value in every person enough to throw birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Well, that's exactly the kind of church Jesus came to create, a church of grace, a church that models the love of God for all. 
So are you experiencing religion or true Christianity? A real relationship with a God of amazing grace and incomparable love. Let's pray. Let me encourage you now, especially if you feel like God is somehow disappointed in you, mad at you. Realize that's a lie. Nothing will ever change his love for you. Just receive that and thank God for that. And let me ask this question. Do you know for certain that you belong to Jesus Christ? I'm not asking whether you have grown up in the church. I'm not asking if you've been confirmed or baptized or whether you have made communion, anything like that. What I'm asking is, is there ever a time that you can remember that you asked Jesus to forgive your sins, to come into your heart and life and make you the person he created you to be? And if you're not sure or if you cannot remember a time that you've done that, I want to encourage you to do that right now. Why don't you begin the relationship with Jesus that he created you for and that he died to make possible? So if you'd like to give your life to Christ, I'd like you to pray this after me silently. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you came to this earth as a man. I believe that you suffered and died on the cross. And you took the penalty for my sins there upon yourself. I believe that you rose from the dead and are alive today. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Wash away all my sins. Come into my heart and life. And begin today and for the rest of my life to make me the person you've created me to be. Help me to live the abundant life that you desire for me. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. Now the scripture says that if we will confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, uh, we will be saved. And I do believe it's important for us to confess with our mouth. And so I'm going to ask all of us to just make this confession of faith out loud and I especially want those of you that if you prayed to give your life to Christ just a moment ago it's especially important for you to pray this to declare this out loud so repeat after me all of us Jesus I believe that you are the son of God I believe that you died on the cross for my sins I believe that you rose from the dead and are alive today. And you are Lord. You are my Lord. Thank you for forgiving me, for adopting me as your child, and giving me eternal life.